turn, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10. That's our focus, the first 10 verses of that chapter. All through Romans, or at least through a greater part of Romans, we dealt with the subject of justification. And we're dealing in Hebrews largely with the subject of sanctification. If you really want to understand the difference between the two, it's a matter of two different words. Justification is our standing before God. Sanctification is for God. He justified us before him. He sanctifies us for him, sets us apart for him. God rejects no man. And from the cross to which he was impaled, Jesus said, I am a worm and no man. God rejects no man. Jesus said, I am a worm and no man. God rejects no man. Uk anthropos. That's Jesus by his own admission. I am uk anthropos. God rejects no man. Jesus said, I am no man. Because God rejects no man and only rejected the one who became no man, he reconciles every man. He reconciles all people. That's a matter of fact. It's not a matter of human realization, only when God awakens you to the fact that the reconciliation of the world has occurred in Christ and that within that huge circle is the tiny circle that you inhabit for he reconciled you, he reconciled me. God is for me, pro me, but God is for us, pro nobis, but God is for all, pro omnia. God rejects no man. And if we say that God rejects no man, we have to test that by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there, voila, the crucified one, Jesus Christ, by his own self-declaration, is the no man. So he alone is the one whom God rejected. So in him, every man, every human being was elected. And so we are elected, we are called, and as believers who are called and know it, we have to recognize about ourselves that we are not yet called, for God continues to call. He continues to call us to a vocation of witness to his son. And so we look at other men, other people, other women, other human beings, fellow human beings, who are not called, but we see them as those who are not called. We, the not called, see them as the not called, and we have fellowship in that sense. We have an understanding. The only difference between reconciled us and reconciled them is that God has awakened us to their reconciliation, and therefore we are responsible to have the word of reconciliation and to say, be reconciled to God, which is simply the request that everyone be what they are and realize the peace that they have. This awakening is what is supposed to happen in church. 
<clears throat> is supposed to happen here, and it does. And so we're in Hebrews 10 in a larger section, 10, 1 to 10, but I want to consider something right in the heart of the matter, right in the heart of that passage, and it's another extended quote by the pastor teacher who wrote this. I'm particularly fond of Hebrews because it was written by a pastor teacher. And he quotes Psalm 40 in verse 6 through 8 in your Bible, which is the Septuagint version. The Greek version is Psalm 39, 7 through 9. And there he says, Sacrifice and offering is not what you willed, speaking to God. Who's speaking in this psalm? David. But David said in his own admission in 2 Samuel 23, 2, the Holy One spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ spoke by David. So ultimately, these are the words of Messiah that were spoken through David and came down through the corridors of history, coming into the world, this world, this passing transient age. Jesus says, sacrifice and offering is not what you willed, speaking to the Father, but you've made a body for me. You're not pleased with holocausts and offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it is written about me to do, O God, your will. We know what God's will is. It's found in 1 Timothy 2.4. He's willing to save all humankind and bring everyone to the knowledge, the surpassing knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus Christ. He will do all this will because Jesus did all God's will. There's one act that occurred in the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, one act alone. We appreciate and are stunned and worshipful at his miracles, at his driving out of demons, at his preaching, at his teaching, and in the days of his flesh. But what God did one act in Jesus Christ's incarnation culminated in his death. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. That's the one act of God performed in the man, Jesus, during the course of the days of his flesh. And when God awakens us to this, this reconciliation becomes actual. And we're looking at it from the standpoint of the complete forgiveness of sins to which we are awakened and the purification of our consciousness from the unanswered awareness of our guilt answered by the blood of Jesus Christ. The will of God that was done by Jesus Christ was the fulfilling of God's intense desire to reconcile all things in the heavens and on earth to him. This is the will of God, and I will do all my will, he says. Within this section of the unbreakable scripture, as Jesus called it in John 10.35, there's an important inclusio regarding the law. That means the law that came through Moses. We're confronted here with the impotence of the law that came through Moses. And within that law, 
the inefficacy, the ineffectiveness of its prescribed sacrifices offered by Aaron and his sons. What the writer is after here and throughout his homily is the completion of his readers. That does not mean the moral completion, not even really the spiritual completion, but their complete qualification to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what God is after. That's whom God seeks. For the Father seeks worshipers of him in spirit and in truth. That's why we're here. No one is a witness of Christ without being a worshiper of the Father. No one is a worshiper of the Father without being a witness of his Son. Jesus Christ is both the humiliated Son of God and the exalted Son of Man in one. He humbled himself as God in the flesh, even to the extent of death on the cross. <clears throat> he became obedient to the redemptive will of God, the salvific will of God, the universally redemptive and salvific will of God. Now we have to put a couple fancy work, words into play if we're going to teach the word accurately. You can't teach it accurately without some vocabulary an extension of vocabulary. Inefficacy means the inability to bring about a desired effect. Just as efficacy, we speak of that with regard to medicines, an efficacious medicine brings about the desired effect, which is either the prevention of disease or the cure of a disease. So inefficacy is attributed to the sacrifices prescribed by the law. Impotence, of course, the lack of power is applied to the law itself. The writer here is dealing with this theme by showing the incomplete effect, ultimately the incomplete redemptive salvific effect. There's another word we put into play a few years ago, salvific. It's not an idiosyncratic word. It's not something we're trying to be fancy with. It's the best way to describe God's will. Salvific, S-A-L-V-I-F-I-C. Put salvific together with efficacy and you have the once and for all sacrifice of Christ being salvifically efficacious, effective, powerful and effective bringing about universal salvation. There is no salvation from God except one of extreme generality that being universality. There is no salvation from God that's not eternal. There is no salvation from God that's not universal. There is no salvation from God that's not diachronic, which means takes place over the whole range and span of time and history. And so it's not just pro-me. It's not just God saving me. That's the way I used to see it. Now I see it with God saving the world and, oh yeah, there's me within it. And that way you see the whole world quite differently. No person is ever seen by you in the same way because they are elected in Jesus Christ, reconciled to God in Jesus Christ, whether they know it, whether they're non-Christian or anti-Christian. That's the case with them. Jesus Christ has brought into effect this change and alteration of the human situation. 
It's just that we woke up to it, but we have to keep awake. That's why we come to church. That's why we're in the word. We are, have to keep awake. And so we have the impotence of the law as a whole and the inefficacy of the sacrifices according to the law. And that means the incomplete efficacy for the forgiveness of sins by the blood poured out in sacrifice of animals and the inefficacy for purification of the consciousness from sins by the sprinkled blood of the same. There's a big move today for therapy. Everybody needs a therapist. Well, I can give you some therapy today. It won't cost you $400 an hour. In fact, it'll be totally free, and it'll have to do with the purification of the conscience by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the root cause that it is the root cure for the cause of about 92% of what ails us as a human race. Efficacy, by definition, once again, is power or capacity to produce a desired effect. Effectiveness also means about the same thing. When we consider together the realities of the forgiveness of sins by the poured out blood of Jesus and the purification of the consciousness from sins and dead works through the sprinkled blood of Jesus, as it's called, we're concerned with soteriology, another word for our consideration. That means simply salvific realities. So remember our little big word, salvific. Again, the definition for salvific is simply having the intention or power to bring about salvation or redemption. Even the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, has that exact definition. When we speak about the power to bring about a desired effect, we're getting closer to the meaning of our passage. That's why I'm saying all that I'm saying in Hebrews 10, 6 through 8. Quoting again from Psalm 40, verse 6 through 8, Septuagint 39, 7 to 9, it is also correct to say that sacrifice and offering, that is, those offered according to the law, as obedience to the prescription of Moses' law, are not what God desired because they do not produce the desired salvific effect, not a complete effect of salva salvation. They are not ultimately what God wanted or intended to be that which brought about the propitiation of the sins of the world. In 1 John 2.2, expiation or the putting away of the sins of the world to the point where God was satisfied that they were put away. Propitiation doesn't mean that God was really mad, so he had to be appeased. It means that God became satisfied that the price to secure the release of the human race from sin and from its penalty was secured in his humbled son. And therefore God exalted the son of man to show that satisfaction. And so these sacrifices, there are four kinds listed in Hebrews 10, six through eight, are not ultimately what he wanted or intended to be that which brought about this divine satisfaction. Satisfaction 
that a just and sufficient price was paid to secure release. That's what aphesis means. Forgiveness is release. To secure release of those under sin and living in the fear of death. Neither were those sacrifices capable of bringing the worshipers who offer them a complete interior purification. God didn't want or will a sacrifice or an offering as those offered under the law by the Aaronic priest of the Levitical cultus. What God willed, what he desired, and what pleased him in the sense of being satisfactory and salvifically efficacious is the unique sacrifice and the one-time offering of the not Aaronic but Melchizedekan priest, his son. This sacrifice and this offering would and did bring about the divinely desired and the divinely intended salvific effect or effects, we could say, because there are many of them within salvation. So let's look again at the heart of our passage. There is, in the heart of our passage, verses 5 through 8, a sacrifice and an offering is not what you willed, desired, wanted, intended. Meaning, and he's going to explain it in verse 8. He does his own commentary, does what I do when I translate, puts a bracketed commentary, bracketed insert. Now I'm going to show you what I mean. A sacrifice and an offering is not what you willed, but you've made a body for me. The body of Jesus Christ is the vehicle for his meritorious obedience by which he merited and secured redemption for all the human race and all of creation. You're not pleased, and that means more than just happy or pleased or delighted. That means you have not found utter satisfaction with holocaust, that's whole burnt offerings and offerings for sin. Then I said, speaking of Messiah, the greater descendant of David, look, I've come in the scroll of the book, it's written about me, to do, O God, your will. Next time, you see a Christmas crash with the little baby Jesus in a manger. We should put that verse above it. He's saying something. Look, I've come. A sacrifice and offering under the law you didn't desire, but you made a body for me to do your will. And so the PT now comes in with his own little commentary, which is just as inspired as that text. And he says, in the text above where he said, sacrifices and offerings and holocausts and offerings for sin, you haven't willed, then he has a bracket. And it's right within the scriptures because it's inspired. He said, that is those offered according to the law. God did want, God did desire a sacrifice. God did want, God did will, God did desire an offering, but just not those offered according to the law. The offering, rather, of the body of his son in Hebrews 10, 5. Look at verse 10 then, jump over there. By which will we are sanctified. Not only justified before God, but sanctified 
for God. And that's an act that has to keep coming because Jesus prayed, sanctify them, Father, in your truth. Your word is truth. That's why we come here, to be for God, to be set apart for him, to be called into the vocation of worshipers of the Father and witnesses to the Son, filled with the Holy Spirit, manifesting in our bodies the life of Jesus, magnifying by our bodies God's Son. So in the, te in the text above where he said, sacrifice and offerings and holocausts for sin, you haven't willed, he then says, since he hasn't willed those offered according to the law, look, I've come to do your will. So we can reply with a kind of antiphonal response and confession of faith. This is how I replied to this. The sacrifice and the offering of Jesus Christ, your son, was and is and always will be effective to bring about what you desired, namely the salvation of all of humanity, of every human being. God's desired effect is universally salvific, redemptive, restorative, and transformative. And you can't do anything against it. You can say all you want against it, but your words will fall on God's deaf ears and fall to the ground and then sink in the sinking sand of ground that we do not stand on. Now let's consider opposites. The best way to teach and the best way to reveal something is to put it next to its opposite. Aquinas understood this. One of the best things he said was in Summa Theologica Part 2 of 2, question 145, Article 4. You all knew that, though. He says, opposites are most manifestive of one another. Opposites are most manifestive of one another. So you take a thing, and how you best describe it is by looking at it against its opposite. This holds true with the Bible in many places, light versus darkness. Truth, the falsehood of man versus, or truth versus the falsehood of man. Truth that's embodied in Jesus, the man, versus the lie, which is all, the falsehood of all mankind apart from him. We have life versus death. We have condemnation versus or in opposition to justification. We have law versus gospel. We have the false gospel, the justification by the works of the law, versus the gospel of the grace of God. We have the gospel of God about his son and justification by his faithfulness and meritorious obedience over and against a gospel of human merit human faith, human faithfulness, works according to the law. Because time would run out for us, using a Hebrew Hebraism, we cannot make in our allotted time an exclusive list, an exhaustive list of illustrations and examples of Aquinas' maxim. Opposites are most manifestive of one another. So we have now, let's put two words together that are in play now. 
the salvific inefficacy of the sacrifices and offerings made by prescription of the law that came through Moses and they were administered by his brother Aaron and Aaron's sons manifests most powerfully the omnipotent power and ultimate effectiveness of their opposite, namely the singular, once and for all, self-sacrifice of Jesus Christ, called by metonymy or figure of speech, his blood poured out. We can use that because Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. And by many, we know he meant all. And so we have this many, many sacrifices, really countless, in opposition to the one, the singular and the unrepeated, which has the redemptive and eternal effect of bringing about redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1.7 and also has the effect, and here's where the therapist comes in, of creating a consciousness free from unresolved guilt, a constant remembrance of one's sins or of others' sins against one, a freedom by the offering of Jesus Christ face-to-face -face with God in heaven for us and by his sprinkled blood. His sprinkled blood is said to be currently located and forever found in the heavenly Jerusalem. Opposites abound in Hebrews then, in their most manifestive of one another. These are the opposites there of many and the repeated versus the once for all, of priests plural versus the singular priest of temporary priests opposed to the eternal priest, the order of Aaron opposed to the order of Melchizedek, the sacrifices and offerings made according to the law versus the one sacrifice and offering made according to God's will and pleasure, the one that truly brought him satisfaction, the only one of which all the ones under the law are a mere shadow which brings satisfaction or pleasure to God and which may truly be called everlastingly, completely efficacious as propitiation or expiation, but not only for Israel's sins, but for the sins of the whole world, not just for the sins of the church, but for the outsiders, the sins of the whole world. Crux probat Omnia, the cross, is the test for everything. All the people, all places of all times. My argument, therefore, in Hebrews, and what sets apart our little treatment of Hebrews from others, in fact, probably all others, is not only for the everlasting redemptive or saving efficacy and eternal efficacy of Jesus Christ's sacrifice and offering, but also for his universal and diachronic, that means spanning all time, salvific efficacy. That's what's inferred if you're listening to Wednesdays. And again, this coming Wednesday, there'll be a second part to last Wednesdays. Inferred. 
universal diachronic, and I can also prove it with lower blade data, but time would fail us to do that today. In Romans, let's just stack one thing on, on another here for understanding. In Romans, we considered the salvific inefficacy of the law and its opposite. The power of God in Christ for salvation is the opposite of the law in that sense, according to the gospel. In Romans 8.3, calling the subject the salvific impotence of the law, we looked at this verse, and it's a very important verse. Paul wrote in Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do, salvific impotence of the law, since it was limited by the flesh, God did. God did. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and we have yet to bridge or broach that subject again, what did it mean the son came in the likeness of sinful flesh? And that's the humiliation of the son of God, and then his resurrection is the exaltation of the son of man. What, is it, what form did he take? How did he walk around on this planet? Was he a perfect man, which would have been God being cruel to us by showing us that we could never be like him? Or did he come in the likeness of sinful flesh, not that he had sinful flesh, but that he had flesh that, like ours, is incapable of not sinning unless there's a total dependence upon God and his divine person and the Father? We still have to bridge that gap. So don't think I've forgotten it. And don't think I've forgotten the question, did Jesus laugh? See, you laughed, and you're in Christ. Answer, finished. The law, only a shadow of good things about to come, as Hebrews 10.1 says, answers this. But first, let's look at Romans 8.3. What the law was powerless to do, since it was limited by the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and... As a sacrifice for sin, is how that should be translated, condemned sin in the flesh. And I interpret that as the flesh that the eternal word became in his incarnation. Sin itself was condemned in his flesh as he became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. It's almost as if the Hebrews writer, now back to Hebrews 10, it's almost as if the Hebrews writer, the PT under this apostle Paul, actually continued this thought from Romans 8.3 in his own way under the hegemonic spirit in Hebrews 10.1. For the law, you can almost see, put them together sometime in your study, what the law was powerless to do in verse 3 of Romans 8 then it's almost as if he's continuing that thought in Hebrews 10.1 because he says, for the law, only a shadow of good things about to come and not the actual essence of those things with the same old sacrifices that they continually offer year after year can never make perfect teleose those who draw near. Can never complete or completely qualify Worshippers for true worship. The shadow sacrifices offered during an extensive period of time in Israel's, Israel's storied history are merely, and this is hard to swallow for people after hundreds and hundreds of years of this occurring, they're merely the shadow, 
A, of the one-time unrepeatable sacrifice of the slaughtered lamb in eternity, before the foundation of the world, and B, a shadow cast from the future of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. They were only adumbrations, foreshadowings, indistinct types. Again, we must deal with the particular category noted by the we who were sanctified in Hebrews 10.10 by that offering of Jesus' body. The we who were sanctified. We were sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And we see that that category of we is in a circle, a larger circle of the world because he was the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he was the satisfaction to God that a price was secured for the forgiveness of the sins of all the world. And would you start thinking that you really believe that? I really believe that. And so it makes me look at the whole human race in a different way. I cannot see any person any longer according to the flesh. Can't do it. I see him as elected in Christ and about to be called, if not called, and know it. They're either called and know it, or they're called and they don't know it. And even if they're called as we are, we're yet to be called, so we're like the not called because we're still not called as we're going to be called. That's how we look at other people. And we, we have a tolerance for the human race. We see that this guy can't help saying that, doing that, lying through his teeth. He can't help it. He hasn't yet been awakened to his reconciliation. He hasn't been awakened to the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ. He's an anti-Christian or a non-Christian. And he's only acting according to his nature naturally. And so... That doesn't mean we condone or especially applaud what the world is doing today. <clears throat> We're on the time of American history that if I was to put a chapter in the book called U.S. History, I would put it as chapter 13, National Suicide. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.18, we've seen it before. The God who reconciled us, Paul speaking of himself and the new covenant community, also reconciled the world to himself in Christ in a bigger circle. Get aware of that bigger circle. When we're dealing with the salvific or redemptive efficacy of the sacrifice and offering of Jesus Christ, we're dealing not only with the everlasting efficacy of his death slash blood, but also of the universal and diachronic salvific efficacy of the same. We're dealing with the universally salvific impact of the cross of Christ and more precisely with the universally saving significance of Jesus who himself is the reality of universal salvation. And that's why we know that in him all men were elected. John Calvin, in his famous doctrine of election, missed something, Jesus Christ. He missed somebody, Jesus Christ. He saw election, and right at the point when it should have been a good doctrine, he omitted Christology. Bart put that back together again. 
All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do it. Karl Barth did it under the direction of the hegemonic spirit. In Jesus Christ, all mankind were elected. And only Jesus rejected because God rejects no man, which is the name of the man, Jesus, on the cross, a name that he gave himself. I am no man. Rejected of God, far from God, by the grace of God, tasted death for all of us. And so that cross has effect in terms of universal re reconciliation, universal justification. Justification of all, I take it seriously in Romans 5.18. Universal sanctification also, as we're going to prove. Justification being, in, being what we are before God. Sanctification being for God, set apart for him for his purpose, for his service. Universal restoration, universal new creation, all because the universal saving efficacy of Jesus Christ. So for me, once first I saw God's salvation pro-may, for me, and of course for people I love right around me, family, friends, etc. Then I saw it as accomplished for the world, pro-nobis, pro-omnia. Now I see it first as that which God accomplished for the world and for all in Christ Jesus, and then for me. God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not only not perish, nobody's going to perish, God, not will, God wills that none should perish. Not only not perish, but the believing are the, a special category who begin to experience the life of the coming age in the present Passing evil age. That's astonishing. God loved the world, it says first, so that whosoever, me, you, believe in him, keep believing or have the believing, actually have an experience of the life of the coming age, which all human beings will have in future world. We got it now. Now, I see it first, then, as what God accomplished for the world, and then for me. Yes, for me, but first for us all, and then for me. With the sacrifice and offerings presented under the law, God did not become satisfied as to propitiation, expiation of sin, and sins. He intended these to have the value of simple anticipations, adumbrations, which is indistinct indications in expectation of the substance and reality that is Jesus. All those thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of sacrifices where God's saying, this is pointing to him, this is pointing to him, these are pointing to him. These have only the value of pointing a finger forward at him, at him, at him. Now, here's the therapy session. And let's just read first Hebrews 2, 10, 2, and 3. Otherwise, would they not have ceased being offered since the worshipers, having been once and for all purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But, it, but no, in those sacrifices, there is actually a remembrance of sins every year. 
Now here's where we have to make a fine distinction, which I didn't make in former studies of Hebrews, but I'm making in this one. Consciousness is the translation of the Greek word sunedesin, S-U-N-E-I-D-E-S-I-N. You'll see it in print. Consciousness of sins means a consciousness dominated by sins and therefore by unanswered guilt, whether it's subdued guilt or whether it's fierce guilt. Consciousness is a better translation than conscience in Hebrews. Conscience. It's not conscience, but consciousness here. One doesn't have a conscious conscience of sins, but rather an awareness or a consciousness of sins. So consciousness is the better English equivalent for a sunedesin in this case. And also, I think, in Hebrews 9, 9, 9, 14, 10, 22, and even 13, 18. Conscience. When we speak of conscience, it's an interior faculty for the distinguishing of good from evil and right from wrong. That's what we mean when we say conscience, not consciousness. And right from wrong. We know that in our conscience. But in Hebrews, the word for that is aistheterion in Hebrews 5.14. The faculty for discerning good from evil is called aistheterion, not Sunadesan. So when he talks about the purifying of the consciousness, he's not talking about the conscience being purified, though that's a secondary result, but the consciousness is purified, the awareness. And so a comparison of the passages in which Sunadesan appears with the Place where one place where faculties are described that discern good from evil is a strong indication that what the writer means by sunidation is consciousness. When we speak of a guilty conscience or a clean conscience, we're really speaking of a consciousness of guilt on the one hand, a guilty conscience, or of an awareness of freedom or exoneration from guilt on the other hand, a clean conscience. We don't sleep like a baby because our faculty to discern good from evil is clean, but because our consciousness is clear of condemnation, self-condemnation mostly. So consciousness in the sense of awareness is the best way to apply sunodesis. Paul said it in 2 Timothy 1.3. He said this, he speaks of serving God with a clear Conscience, he means a clear mind or consciousness, awareness. Likewise, in Titus 1.15, Sunidasis has the same sense of a consciousness along with a mind that is defiled. Paul said when someone has a defiled consciousness, they're not aware of their forgiveness or the forgiveness of others by the blood of Jesus Christ. They see everything through muddy lenses. They see everything through the defiled lenses. They see imperfections, but not only imperfections, but sinful imperfections in everything and in everybody. They want to edit the world. They want to edit God's universe. They can't see. To the pure, all things are pure means a lot of different things, but I'll tell you what it mainly means. To the pure of consciousness, all the world has been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. The whole world's been reconciled to God in Christ. To the pure of conscious, you can see that. To the impure of consciousness, nothing is pure. 
Nothing has happened to, to reconcile the world to God in Christ. It's not known or recognized. So when the mind and consciousness is defiled by constant guilty reference to one's own sins or one's own, on the other hand, self-righteous allegation of personal purity without the blood of Christ, which is even worse, that mind and consciousness usually sees everyone through a distorted inner lenses, seeing everything and everybody as defiled and impure. And so the Christians that call themselves evangelicals point to the impure and the terrible things that people are doing, failing to recognize that, yes, that may be true, but all the world is reconciled to God in Christ Jesus is even more true and a greater reality. That is not only not popular in the press and in churches, it's almost unsaid altogether. Which is why I pray for a divine awakening, not for a change of human behaviors first. When a person has a consciousness defiled by their own sins and the constant awareness of them, that person needs to see others. They have a need in themselves to see others as similarly defiled so as not to feel alone. They need to defile others by gossip, slander, innuendo, sometimes overt, sometimes more serpentine and subtle. The sacrifices and offerings made and continually in connection with the law and the blood of animals were inefficacious for both complete forgiveness and complete purification of the consciousness. The sacrifice of Jesus, which involved his poured out blood, was and is always efficacious, bringing about the desired effect for the complete forgiveness of sins. I said complete forgiveness of sins. His offering, on the other hand, which involves his sprinkled blood, was and is and always will be efficacious for the complete purification of the consciousness of sin. That means a consciousness that thinks of the sins that it's committed or others have committed as if they're unforgiven. The poured out blood of Jesus is the blood of the new covenant which is here to stay. Or better, it's in the heavenly Jerusalem to stay in Hebrews 12.24. Whereas the poured out blood of sacrificial animals is the blood associated with the old covenant, which was always on the verge of vanishing and now has vanished altogether. So the writer is saying to the people that are doing the sacrifices over and again, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? If you keep doing that, you might find yourself smack dab in the middle of Jerusalem in about A.D. 67, then locked in by the Roman siege and destroyed by fiery vengeance. Then go to heaven, as they say. And so what the writer is doing is revealing the salvific impotence of the law of Moses, the inefficacy of the sacrifices and offerings, made in obedience to that law. Salvation is that which we have in Christ Jesus. Includes the forgiveness of sins 
and thus the complete purgation of the consciousness from the evil of guilt. And guilt is an evil. If you entertain it, you are entertaining evil. The evil of guilt is the awareness of sins as if they're unforgiven, as if Christ's blood was not poured out. And that evil of guilt becomes the driving impulse to do dead works to assuage that guilt. Those works must be regarded as dead because the work was already done that accomplishes the purification of the consciousness of sins. Do good works all day long, please, God says. But don't do them because you think that you're going to gain forgiveness by them or assuage the evil of guilt by them. That would be a dead work. How much work that's good work is really a dead work today? I don't even want to calculate. I don't want to calculate. So as we move to a close, here's something that I think is extremely important. I learned it through suffering a great deal. I learned it through doctrine, but I learned it through suffering. I learned it through experience. The purification of the consciousness from sin does not mean that we don't have a memory of what we were and of what we thought and did under the control of sin. The cosmos and the flesh. We don't forget that once we were, as Paul said, children of wrath. That means people controlled by anger. The sons of disobedience, walking according to the course of this passing world, set by the prince of the power of demonic airborne spirits, walking in lockstep with him. Put the emphasis on were, though. Put the emphasis on were. As the late Toby Keith sang, with reference to something Clint Eastwood said to him, we don't let the old man in. He was talking to Clint Eastwood, who I think is in his mid-90s now, and he, he said, Clint, you're, you're 88, and you're still directing movies. How do you do it? And Clint said, I don't let the old man in. I don't let him in. He doesn't get old because he, I know people, sometimes people in high places, they've let the old man in. And they stumble around like the old man is the old man. I also know men of the same age or older that haven't let the old man in. What are they doing now? Directing movies. Jürgen Moltmann's 97, sharp as a tack and still can write a theological thesis. Professor Emeritus at Tübingen University in Germany. So I just took that advice and Pam even played the song, Don't Let the Old Man In. Toby Keith just passed into the presence of the Lord very recently. So I don't let the old man in. It's another way of saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the old man. Don't let the old man in. But Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, and I'm always intrigued by this, he said, I have gratitude to the one who has enabled me, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he considered me faithful. God saw down the road, and he considered, he saw, foreknew that Paul would be faithful to a commission, so he gave it to him, placing me in the ministry. And then Paul says, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent, arrogant man. 
Paul isn't like that idiotic song, Spirit in the Sky. Not a sinner, never been a sinner, I never sinned. Yes, you're also a hippie who fried your brains on mushrooms. Now, or along with them. Paul didn't say, I never was a sinner, never sinned. He said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent, arrogant man. But I receive mercy. Because I was being, being ignorant, I acted in unbelief. Philippians 3, 6, he said, as for my so-called zeal in those days, you know what I did with my zeal? I persecuted the church, the New Covenant community. This same Paul also said, without contradiction to these former declarations, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. And in 2 Timothy 1.3, I have gratitude to God, whom, like my forefathers, I serve with a clean conscience. I'm going to close with our free therapy session in excursus. It's important to understand that a clean conscience, a thoroughly purified consciousness, purged of the evil of debilitating guilt does not mean that we aren't aware of the egregious nature of our former sins. On the contrary, it's only after receiving mercy and being aware of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus that we become aware of just how sinful our sins and former activities were. That's why it's stupid and silly. Admit you're a sinner and invite Jesus. You can't admit that you're a sinner. You don't even know the depth of what that means until you're in Christ and look at the sin he forgave you of. It's completely backwards today, and it's a false gospel that is more evil, more subtly satanic than the gospel Paul fought against in Romans, the gospel of salvation through works of the law, justification through works of the law. It's worse, and people have the audacity to call themselves evangelicals as if they're preaching good news, ha, ha, ha. Now, we don't forget that we sinned. I certainly don't forget that you sinned. <laughs> we don't forget that we sinned, nor do we forget our sins per se. And if we forget them, somebody else will be around in our lives to constantly remind us. But we remember God's forgetfulness of our sins. That's what I want to remember. We remember God's forgetfulness of our sins. Nobody's ever said that. You know, they may have. We think of our sins in a wholesome way as forgiven. It's not like we come to Jesus and admit that we're sinners in order to be cleansed. No. It's more like having received his saving mercy, we become aware of just how sinful we were and just how much we've been forgiven. Our awareness of our former sinfulness and our present continued weakness as justified sinners, and that's what we are, weak but justified sinners, does not leave us and should not leave us while we live in this transient evil age. But we are aware of our sinfulness only in the glaring light of our forgiveness. This is where so many fail to understand that assurance of a great salvation that we have does not and cannot constitute a so-called license to sin. 
Those who make such an accusation reveal that they're actually without a purgation of their own conscience and consciousness. And they're still living in a defiled conscience through which they misjudge everything and to whom nothing is pure. In Titus 1.15, those with a purified conscience by the sprinkled blood of Jesus are both aware of the atrocious nature of their former action and even of their former selves. Your former self doesn't go to heaven. That'll solve the problem of people that like to think of you going to hell. Those with a purified conscience are at the same time repelled by the idea of returning to the old man and reverting to such actions. Someone who acts with arrogant self-confidence in the performance of a sinful or even criminal act with the rationalization, I'll still go to heaven if I do this is a person who is not truly of a purified conscience or consciousness. One who, is, one who is of a purified consciousness can't even rationalize that way. I'm going to steal this because I'm going to go to heaven anyway. You can't. You, if you have an impure conscience to even say that, rationalize that. Someone with, who acts with arrogant self-confidence and say, I'll still go to heaven, is a person who is not of a purified consciousness. One who is can't rationalize that way. Can't. We should not glory, on the other hand, or be proud of ourselves for our former evils and even gain profit from going around telling everyone about it. People make money going around telling everybody about how bad they were before they met Jesus. That's a glorying in the flesh, too. It's useless, and it's not recommended by any sane stretch of scripture. That too is a sign of a not purified but a still defiled conscience. Paul made mention of his former sinfulness and his former self, but he didn't profit from it. He didn't major on this and go on the road with his testimony about how bad he was. In fact, the times he mentioned it, he does so kind of painfully but he knows they're for, he was forgiven. He preached the gospel of the grace of God. He majored on the mercy of God and the faithfulness and love of Jesus Christ. He didn't glory in his past sinfulness. Nor did he glory in his religious self-righteousness and his former piety. You know what he gloried in? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which he was crucified to the world and by which the world was crucified to him. He didn't preach himself but Christ Jesus the Lord. He viewed sin as it ought to be viewed, as exceedingly sinful, as repulsive to God and to his new self. He considered the prospect of returning to it as something to be avoided with horror. I'm talking about a balanced Christian here now, not someone who uses his assurance as an excuse to be, and I'm trying to think of it, to be bad. And so should we consider a return to the former self to be horrific. 
A defiled conscience and assurance of heaven are not friendly roommates. But a decisively purged conscience cleans out all the leaven of the evil of guilt while at the same time leaving a distinctive awareness of the sinfulness of the sin and the sins for which we have been forgiven. And even more, the awareness of the price that was paid to secure that forgiveness. We'll not be thinking, how can I get away with this? But rather, praying, my God, my God, keep me from the presumption that I can sin without miserable consequences. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Psalm 1913. This is the attitude and the prayer of the one with a purified conscience. So in closing, indeed, let me say this. The forgiveness achieved by the poured out blood of Jesus coupled with the efficacious purification of our consciousness by his sprinkled blood, makes complete or fully qualified those who come to God through Jesus as a household of priests under the great archpriest, qualified for worship, for thanksgiving, and for praise. This is why Hebrews 10.19 begins the hortatory section immediately following the exposition between 8.1 and 10.18 with these words, Therefore, brothers and sisters, having confidence for entrance into the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, we who have been awakened to the complete forgiveness of our sins by the blood of Jesus and who are purified of plaguing guilt in our consciousness for sins we committed or for righteous acts which we omitted, We are those whom God the Father seeks to worship him, for we are qualified to worship him in spirit and in truth. We don't worship God in spirit and truth, while at the same time inwardly conspiring with our old man as to how we can sin with impunity. Or, on the other hand, nurturing the evil of guilt as an excuse from serving him. The knowledge of the forgiveness of sins is compatible with the knowledge of the evil nature of sin and even of the sins and sinfulness of our former selves. We are not left with the debilitating guilt for those sins and for the former lifestyle of sin, but neither are we forgetful of the miserable pit from which we have been extracted by the grace and the mercy of God. May this message be to the praise of the glory of your grace, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the final song.